The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Last week, we uh, wrapped up a series called Christianity and Culture, which we were talking about the, uh, the difference that Christianity is supposed to make in the culture. And we're starting a new series uh, in a couple weeks. It'll take us through the, the rest of the summer. But in between, uh, we've got a standalone week this week, and I want to use it to not end a series. I want to use it to talk about something that I think is pretty important. Um, if you've, it's something we try to work in at least once a year at LMCC. If you've been around, it's something you've heard us talk about before. If you haven't been around, uh, then I, actually, if you haven't heard us talk about this before, this, this may be, the sermon this morning may be one of the more important sermons that you ever hear. Not because of anything about the way I've put it together, but just because of the subject matter, the content itself. The title of the sermon is, What Must I Do? And it's taken from that passage that you just heard read. It's this question that the crowd asked Peter. It says they were they're cut to the heart by this sermon that he gave. The inaugural address of the church is the first Christian sermon ever preached. They hear it, they're cut to the heart, and they come and ask him, Okay, in light of everything you just said, what what must we do? In, in other words, how do we, we believe what you're talking about. We've been convicted by what you're talking about. What, what are we supposed to do in light of it in order to join up with it? How do we join God's family? How do we become Christians? How do we identify with, with this thing that you're talking about? It's a question that's asked a lot in the New Testament. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we even saw this question. This was the uh, question that started that whole uh, conversation about the Good Samaritan. You remember the lawyer asked Jesus this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, there's another occasion where this guy known as the rich young ruler asked Jesus the same question verbatim, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, asks him the same question word for word. Or uh, the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, same question that the crowd asked Peter here. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? 
Really important question the crowd asked Peter. And what's great about Peter's answer is how direct it is. He gives a clear, unambiguous answer to a clear, unambiguous question. He doesn't say, you know, they say, what must we do? And he doesn't say, well, it's complicated. Or, well, let me think about it. You know, well, well, I'm not quite sure. No, he, he tells them exactly what they must do. You may have heard it said before, you know, you may have heard somebody say, well, to be a Christian, you don't really have to do anything. That's false. Likewise, you may have heard it said, well, to, to be a Christian, you have to do this long list of things. That's also false. It's not the case that you don't have to do anything. It's not the case that you have to do this long list of things. Because when the crowd asks this question to Peter, what Peter says is you have to do two things. He gives them two things that they have to do. And so I want to copy Peter this, this morning. I want to try to be as direct and unambiguous as he was by just repeating the exact same answer that he gave. He says to, to be a Christian, you need to repent and be baptized. Those are the two things. First, repent. Second, be baptized. Uh, so those will be the two sections to this morning's sermon. We'll take them one at a time. So first, repent. First thing, the first word out of Peter's mouth when they say, what must we do? The first thing he says is repent. Now, we were just talking about how great it is that he gives this clear, unambiguous answer. Well, it, it doesn't help a lot if you don't know what the words mean. And that's what the, the, the situation that a lot of us are in with respect to this word repent. It's not a word that's used a lot anymore. What does it really mean? And it, to the extent that we do understand it, it has a negative connotation. You know, you think of like a a crazy guy holding a sign that says, repent for the end is near, or, you know, some hellfire and brimstone preacher saying, repent. So, so what is repent? What is repentance? You got to put aside all those preconceived notions of what the word means, because I want us to get at a very clear, very precise definition of it this morning. And we can start the way we often start when we're trying to define something by defining it negatively, by saying what repentance is not. Because repentance is commonly confused with two other things, two siblings of repentance, neither of which are repentance itself. So first, let's talk about those. The first thing that repentance is commonly confused with is being sorry for what you've done. You know, sorrow, regret, being penitent. And this is the sense in which you most often hear the, the word used, you know, like, well, at least he's repentant. He, you know, he feels really bad about it. Or he's unrepentant. He didn't, even, he didn't even say sorry. But that's not what repentance means. Now, being sorry for what you've done is something related to repentance. And it's related in the sense that it leads into it. It precedes repentance. It's a prerequisite to repentance, but it's not repentance itself. And you see this in the passage. We, we've mentioned this phrase already. It says they were cut to the heart. They're cut to the heart. Well, that's the sorrow you know, they, uh, Peter was talking about, you killed Jesus, you killed God. They feel bad about that. They regret that. They realize Jesus really was who he said he was. There's the sorrow. But then on top of that, separate from that, after that, they say, what must we do now that we feel this way? And he says, now you got to repent. So it comes later. Or Paul says the exact same thing in Second Corinthians, even more explicitly. There's a verse where he says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to repentance. So it's not repentance itself. The, the second thing that commonly gets confused with repentance is changed behavior. Uh, and, you know, the, you can see why people would think this. Because if once you hear that repentance isn't being sorry for what you've done, then you think, well, okay, so being repentant must mean not doing it again. 
changing your behavior and kind of reforming yourself. But that's not repentance either. And just like uh, sorrow leads into repentance, changed behavior flows out of it. It comes after, but it's not repentance itself. The way you know that is, you know, he says to this crowd, repent and be baptized. Here's the two things you need to do. Repent first, and then after you've repented, be baptized. Well, all of them were baptized that day. So repentance is something you can do in a moment. What he doesn't say is, you know, go change the way you live, and when you have a six-month track record or a, a one-year track record, come back, show it to me, bring some, some witnesses, and then you can be baptized. It's not changed behavior. So it's not sorrow that leads into it. It's not changed behavior. That flows out of it. And, and somewhere right smack in between, in this narrow space between feeling sorry for what you've done and changing your behavior is this thing called repentance. What is it? To figure it out, we can go to the, the word itself, or the words themselves in this case. So the, the Hebrew word for repent, that we translate repent in the Bible, is this word that literally means to return. The Greek word for repent, metanoia, which is used in this passage here in Acts 2 and is used throughout the, the New Testament, is this word that means to think differently after. In other words, to, to change your mind. And you put those two concepts together, and, and what, what repentance is, is, what biblical repentance is, is, it's nothing more than turning around. To repent is to turn around, to change your mind, and to turn back, even, and to go back to where you came from. So what do you mean, go back to where you came from? Well, we talked about this on Easter. We talked about this a couple of months ago with the story of the prodigal son. Because what happens with the prodigal son is there is this moment where the text says he came to his senses and he literally, physically turned around. He turned his body around and started walking back down the exact same road that he had already walked down, but now he's walking in the opposite direction. He's walking back where he came from. But see how it's different from sorrow in a changed life. He hasn't changed his life yet. On the other hand, it's more than just sorrow. If he had felt bad about his decision, he could have felt bad about it and still stayed right where he was. But this moment, this moment of turning, is the moment that he repented. Now, the other thing we talked about on Easter, which we talk about all the time at this church, is that every single one of us is born with a default orientation of facing away from God or back to God. Every single one of us has walked down this road away from God, regardless of whether you are a quote-unquote moral or immoral person. You know, if, you, if you're the kind of person who has a lot of mistakes in your past, you've messed up a lot, you've done a lot of things that you know the Bible doesn't condone, hurt a lot of people, you've made a lot of, of, of messes in your life, well, you don't need me to tell you that your back was turned to, uh, away from God when you were doing those things. You know that already, that's obvious. But the, the big revelation that Jesus had, which has turned the world upside down, is he said, look, your back is just as much turned away from God, even if you're one of the good people. Even if you're one of the, the rule keepers, you just do a better job of hiding it. Because for every one of us, whether you're, you're a rule keeper or not, there is this, this feeling of defiance, this feeling of rebellion against God. And it, it, even, you know, going back to when you're an innocent little kid, you have it all the way through. Uh, our, our three-year-old Kate this week, uh, Brittany gave her some instruction 
that she uh, you know blatantly ignored just to to see how would we, we would react. And so I said, all right, Kate, fine. You, you lost your, your book for tonight. You know, you don't get to do reading time. So at first she, she melts down. You know, she throws herself on the floor and just crying. No, 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 please, please, please. I want to read. And that goes on for a couple minutes. And, but then, then uh, there was this moment where her face changed. Totally different look came into her eyes. And she stands up. And she looks right at me, and she, she pounds her fists in the air, and she says, You are wrong, and I am right. And what is that? It's, it's her saying, Who put you in charge of me? You know? <laughs> well, who says? Who says that, that you just get to take my book away? Whenever you feel like it, just because I didn't follow one of your instructions. Which, speaking of which, why do I have to follow your instructions anyway? You know, you are wrong, and I am right. You are not in charge of me. But the truth is, I am. <laughs> uh, I am in charge of her because I'm the dad. And, you know, we're not, we're not peers. We're not friends. We're not collaborators. We're, we're not equals. I'm in charge. I'm the dad. And until she is grown, I'm not going to have a relationship with her on any other terms but those. Those are the only terms, my terms. Now, if she wants to walk away, she can. If she wants to sever the relationship, she can. Because she, she gets tired of it. She says, I'm tired of having a relationship on your terms. It's always on your terms. So I'm not going to love you today because I'm mad at you about this rule. I'm not going to let you hug me today because you did this thing. She can walk away. She can sever the relationship. But I'm never going to change the terms to accommodate her demands. The terms are the terms. And when she gets tired of all that and, and turns around and comes back to me, in other words, when she repents, then I'm ready to take her back and the relationship is restored. And it's like that with us and God. Every single one of us wants to stand up two and a half feet tall, 35 pounds with our tiny little bodies and pound our tiny little fists and look up at God and say, you are wrong and I am right. And who put you in charge of me? And why do I have to do what you say? And why do you just get to give and take away from me just as you please? And I don't have any say in it at all. You're not in charge of me. But the truth is, he is. He is in charge of you because he's the dad. And he always will be. And repentance is that moment when you stop throwing your tantrum. And you just wake up and realize that you didn't create yourself. You didn't invent the world. You really have no idea what you're doing. And of course you'll have a relationship with God on his terms, because what other terms are there? That's repentance. But you see why you have to be cut to the heart first? Because otherwise, if you haven't had this moment of being pierced and, and feeling this deep sorrow and regret for what you've done, otherwise it's just too hard to say that, because there's too much pride to admit that you were wrong like that. You have to be cut to the heart first. But once you have been cut to the heart, then you can repent. Repentance is more than just being sorry for what you've done. That comes before it. It's, it's 
different from changing your behavior that comes after repentance is this moment in the middle where you turn around and face God again. And Peter says that's the first thing you have to do to become a Christian. You have to repent. That takes us to the second half of the sermon, second section of the sermon. They say, what must we do? And Peter says two things, repent first and second, be baptized. Second, you have to be baptized. So two questions about baptism. First, what is baptism? What's baptism? And second, why baptism? So first, the what is is pretty easy to answer what he's talking about, uh, or at least it should be pretty easy. It's actually been intentionally obscured, what he's talking about here. I want to say a a minute on that. This is a bit of a detour, but I think it's worth it. So uh, in, in 1611, when the King James translates the Bible um, from Greek and Hebrew into English. You know, obviously, the, the, the job of a translator is to take the original words and, and translate them into this other language. And they do a very admirable job of that in most cases. But there are these odd instances where the translators, instead of translating a word, they just refuse. They refuse to translate it. And what they do instead is they translate every other word in the sentence, but then that word they leave in the original language. They leave in Greek, and then they just uh, they sound it out into English and make up a new English word that's just a Greek word with English letters. So a good example of this is the word angel. Uh, angel is not an English word. It's a Greek word. And it's a perfectly normal Greek word, which means messenger. So if they were translating angel into English, they would have translated messenger. Instead, they don't translate it at all, and they just leave it in Greek. And because when the King James was translated, English is still in its infancy, these words then become part of English, these these fake words. So baptism is like that. The word baptism is a perfectly normal Greek word, which means to immerse, to go under. The problem was the, the King James is being sponsored by the Church of England, which had become this, this tradition of baptizing by sprinkling instead of immersing. So it's political. They can't translate it or else it makes the, the church look bad. But they think, well, maybe if we just leave it in Greek, nobody will know what it means, which is, which is what's happened, unfortunately. But there's no doubt about what it meant then. And you ask anybody from any denomination, it's clear what Peter was talking about. He's talking about this ceremony where you you step into the water, go under the water, come back up out of the water. That's what baptism is. That's the easy question. But the hard question is, well, why? Why baptism? And the way I want to answer that, you know, of all the things he could tell people to do, he tells them to go take a bath, to go jump in the river. What's the significance of that? The way I want to answer that this morning, there's a lot of different ways you could answer it. But the, the way I want to do it, what I want to focus on is I want to focus on baptism's practical value, its usefulness for the person being baptized, for the ba- baptizee, for the individual. What, what good does it do for that person? And I want to start to answer that question by asking another question, which is this. So let's say that this has happened for you, you know, that you've been cut to the heart. And for some of you, it has, you know, not for all of you. Um, you know, we talk all the time on Sunday mornings about how we want LMCC to be a place where you can be, feel comfortable if you don't believe, if you still have doubts, if you're not buying it. But, but some of you, uh, to your, your own great surprise, have figured out that you actually do buy it. 
And even here in this room on Sunday mornings, you've had these moments of being cut to the heart. These moments where God's word, God's presence, God's voice, God's spirit, God's truth has pierced you clean through. So let's say that that has happened for you. The question is, how are you going to say it? How are you going to declare that that's happened? Because there's one thing you need to be clear on, which is that being cut to the heart in and of itself isn't enough. That doesn't count for anything. You have to say it. You have to make a statement. If you're really going to be a Christian, you have to make a statement that this has happened for you. How are you going to logistically make that statement? I want to spend a couple of minutes building a menu of options as to how you could do it. So the first way you could do it is you could raise your hand. Uh, you know, you're in church, and the preacher at the end says, all right, everybody bow their heads, close their eyes, and he says, okay, now with every eye closed, those of you that have been cut to the heart today, those of you that, that have, have experienced the truth of this and want to repent and you believe, raise your hand to indicate that. And, and you raise your hand, and there you, there you go. You've, you've said it. So that, that's the first way you could do it. The second way you could do it is you could come forward. You could come to the front. You know, it's just like raising your hand, except this time the preacher at the end of the sermon says, all right, if anybody repents, if anybody believes, if anybody's been cut to the heart, come down to the front. In the early 1900s, there was this uh, former uh, American League or National League baseball star named Billy Sunday who uh, started traveling the country holding these uh, self-titled revivals, quote-unquote, kind of a a presumptuous title, but they were really well-received. He would set up these tents, and they would cover the the ground with sawdust to keep up the, the actual dust, and he would get up and preach a sermon. A huge crowd would come. And then at the end of the sermon, he would say, all right, if anybody repents, if anybody believes, I want you to come on down to the front. Or what he would, the way he put it, he said, I want you to hit the sawdust trail. Hit the sawdust trail and come up front. And of course, Billy Sunday was studied by and copied by another Billy, Billy Graham, who just picked up right where Billy Sunday left off, except with bigger crowds, you know, first tents, then stadiums, and then these ended up being the largest mass gatherings of human beings in history. Billy Graham holds the attendance record for every venue he's ever been in. These huge logistical undertakings, thousands and thousands of people come and pack out these stadiums, and it's all pointed toward this one moment. The whole thing is just about this one moment where he says, he finishes the sermon, he says, all right, If you repent, if you believe, I want you to get up out of your chair, walk down from the upper deck all the way down to the field. And George Beverly Shea would sing, just as I am, and he'd say, we'll wait, you come. And people would. Millions and millions of people came over 50 years. That's the second thing you could do. It's the second option as a a way to declare it, to declare this decision you're making, is you can come forward. You come to the front. Those are the two most time-honored ways. There's, there's two other ways you could do it. The third way you could do it is that you could uh, do something with pen and paper. You know, so you, let's say you're at a church and they've got a, a card. And on the back of the card, there's a checkbox that says, Today I'm committing my life to Christ. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And you check that box. You know, I repent, I believe. You sign a form maybe, you know, I repent, I believe. And then the, the last option that occurs is you could, the fourth thing you could do is you could do something electronically. You know, so you could like send out an email, a mass email to everybody. I, I repent, I believe, 
could tweet it, you could uh, change your Facebook status, repentant believer, you can, you can use electronic medium to make this statement. Now, all those are fine. Uh, some of them are better than others. They're, they're all fine. They all do the trick, which is, you remember, the, the idea here is you just have to make this statement of this thing that's happened for you internally. You have to say it. They all work to some extent, but they all also have the same weakness, which is that they all kind of feel a little bit arbitrary and a little bit artificial. You know, you kind of are left feeling a little bit like, well, is that real? Did it really happen? You know, when I walked down front, did that really mean anything? Or raising my hand or checking a box, you know, isn't this uniting myself with Christ, deciding to be a Christian, isn't that kind of bigger than, than raising your hand? And it, it almost leaves you feeling like, man, you know, I, I just wish that Jesus had told us how to do it, how to, how to make this decision, how to indicate it. I just wish that, that, that the early Christians had all done it the exact same way. I just wish that there was this precedent for us to follow in Scripture. I just, I just wish that there was a holy ceremony of some sort. And of course, Jesus did tell us exactly how to do it. The early Christians did all do it the exact same way. There is this precedent in Scripture. There is this holy ceremony. And that ceremony is baptism, where you step into the water, you're lowered under the water, and you're raised back up out of the water, symbolizing and reenacting your identification with the death and the resurrection of Christ, symbolizing and reenacting the washing away of your sins and the cleansing of your soul, symbolizing and reenacting this old life that you are leaving behind and this new life that you're beginning. So you can raise your hand or check a box or you know, send out an email if you want. But my advice to you as your pastor is be baptized. It's beautiful, it's biblical, and it is the best way I know of of saying, I'm in. Because what's not an option is to say, well, you know, this is, I feel like people take this, this tack sometimes. You know, it's kind of a personal thing. This is a thing between me and God. This is a decision that I've made. Uh, this is a, a personal change that I'm making in my own life, but well, why does anybody else really need to know about it? You know, I mean, if they, they ask, fine, sure, I'll tell them that I'm a Christian. Now, of course, I'm not trying to hide it, but I just don't think you need to make a big show of it. And the person that says that is kind of like the guy that says to the girl, okay, look, let's, let's, uh, let's hang out. Let's act like we're boyfriend and girlfriend. But we don't really need to, to put a label on it. I mean, what are, what are labels really for anyway? You know, they're just for other people, and other people just always misunderstand anyway. You know, it's not really about them. It's about us. So we don't need, we don't need a label because we know what this is. And the girl, if she's smart, will say, like Brittany said to me when I tried this line of reasoning on her, she'll say, look, that may have worked with other girls, but if you want to be with me, you're going to tell people about it. And you take the same illustration one step further, and now I'm not speaking personally anymore. I'm maybe dumb, but I'm not this dumb. Um, it's like if the guy says to the girl, well, let's get married, but you know, we don't need 
We don't need a wedding. You know, it's between us. This is something between us. What's the point of standing up front and making this big show and, hey, everybody, look at me. You know, it's all about them. And this, this ceremony, this pomp and circumstance, it's pointless. Because what's important is that we know in our hearts that we're marrying each other. And same thing. The girl, if she's smart, is going to say, no, if you want to marry me, there's going to be a wedding. Because the obvious question in both cases is, well, wait a minute, are you ashamed of this? You know, do you want this or don't you? Are you in or aren't you? And Jesus is concerned with that exact same question. Are you ashamed of this? Are you in or aren't you? Do you want this or don't you? And what he says is, this is one of the most chilling verses in the entire Bible. What he says in the Gospels is he says, if you are ashamed, if you are ashamed of me, then when I come back, I'm going to be ashamed of you. If you are unwilling to identify with me, then when I come back, I'm going to be unwilling to identify with you. So, conveniently, we have a baptism scheduled for next Sunday. And uh, we actually, we bring the body of water to you. We, we bring the, the pool right here. Uh, so it happens right here at the venue. A number of folks have already signed up to be baptized and if you'd like to join them, if you would like to be baptized next week and you haven't been baptized before as an adult, as a decision that you've made, then uh, just write baptism on the back of your card or you can send me an email this week and let me know and I'll get in touch with you. That's the sermon for this morning. What must we do? Now that we've been cut to the heart, what must we do? And Peter says two things. First, repent. Second, be baptized. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making this so clear, for giving us, you, you know what we need, which is something tangible, something we can touch and feel to hold on to as a, as a way of claiming this for ourselves. So I, I ask that, uh, I pray especially for those in, in this room this morning for whom this is the right thing. They know and you know, uh, you know I, it's not something that I could ever know. But if for those that are ready to be baptized and ready to make this statement, I pray that you'd speak to them right now. I pray that you'd give them a sense of peace and a sense of confidence about it. And most of all, we thank you for the opportunity to join your family, to identify with you, to be one of your followers. We thank you for your graciousness in speaking to us by your spirit and cutting us to the heart without which we would never think to turn back toward you. We want to take that thing that you've given us, that experience, and translate it into action. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.